Revelation chapter 13. And the title of my message this evening is The Terrible Trio, Part 2. Last week, as we were in chapter 12 together, we discovered that John is now revealing to us the nature and the identity of three individuals that we have called the Terrible Trio. And in chapter 12, we discovered that the first of the three is none other than Satan himself, who has now been cast out of heaven. At this point in time, he is on the earth here in the book of Revelation, and he is about to wreak havoc upon the face of the earth. These events are yet future. They are still in a time that is yet to come. But God is telling us beforehand what will happen so that we may know the manner in which His will will be unfolded upon the earth. Today many have considered Bible prophecy, the study of the end times, a secondary issue at best. And yet when I read through the New Testament, I discover that often the apostles and Peter and John and so forth they all lived in the anticipation of the return of Jesus Christ in their day. They believed that He could return at any moment, and they lived accordingly. They lived in purity. They pursued His will and not their own. Apathy, complacency, and carnality were not found in their vocabulary because there was an urgency amongst them that the time was short We needed to be about our Father's business. We need to fulfill the plans and purposes that God has for us because Jesus could return at any moment. And in the return of Jesus Christ, there is a great reconciliation that's going to take place where God will hold the world and the people of the world accountable for the rebellion that they have raged and waged against Him. And then he'll proceed in reigning for 1,000 years here on this earth, according to Revelation 20. And in chapters 21 and 22, often the most neglected chapters of Revelation, but are truly significant, God creates a new heaven and a new earth that we will enjoy for all eternity, characterized by no more sorrow, no more tears, no more weeping, no more pain, no more sin, no more death. But to get to that point, the Bible tells us that a seven-year period must be endured. That seven-year period is the time where God pours out His wrath upon the earth, and part of that is allowing Satan uh, to unleash, I should say, his fury against the earth itself. And that's where we are in the three-and-a-half-year point of this tribulation. Satan has now been cast out of heaven. He is on the earth. And today we are going to be introduced to the next two despots of our terrible trio. An individual that the Bible has spoken about amply from Old to New Testament, one that we deem and call the Antichrist. And the other is the false prophet, one who will be kind of his lackey, if you will, his henchman. And again, as we have been inundated with one superhero movie after another, you know that the conflict is as only good as the adversary. And so often a villain today in our superhero movies are often uh, created in such a way that 
they seem to parallel the abilities and strengths of the superhero himself or herself, but then at the very last moment they are defeated. Though Satan plays the villain, and his henchmen are the Antichrist and the false prophet, let us make no mistake that they are no match for God. They are not equal to God. They are not in the same league with God. And they are only able to do what they are about to do because God allows it to occur. At this point, God is continuing to pour out His wrath upon the world. I believe the church has been removed. The the wrath of God is now being poured out. The nation of Israel is the subject matter as very Jewish Flavor is found throughout the book of Revelation. And as we come to chapter 13, after we discover that Satan has been cast out, he now raises up the one that we have deemed and called the Antichrist. And we'll see that in just a moment. Chuck Swindoll preceded this chapter by writing these words. Every great drama has a villain, sometimes several. Storytellers call them antagonists. Their role in the plot is to antagonize the hero, that they may involve uh, in engaging the hero in hand-to-hand combat or pulling strings behind the scenes. It could include the intimidating and stalking or throwing obstacles in the way of the hero's path or deceiving him by pretending to be an ally. If you think of any successful novel or film, you'll be able to identify the villains. They embody the wickedness of the classic conflicts between good and evil. Yet in the most insidious and potentially destructive nemesis in any kind of plot is the villain who appears to be the hero. That truly sums up the identity of the Antichrist. At the beginning of the seven-year tribulation period, the Antichrist will come on the scene as one who is here to lead the world in, if I like to say, a new utopian age, a time of peace where the, the world is united once and for all. And every young lady who is running for the Miss America pageant will finally get their wish for world peace. <laughs> But something happens during the course of the next seven years. As he continues to gain strength politically, religiously, militarily, at the three and a half year mark, something will occur that will change everything. In chapter 12, we discover that it was the casting down of Satan. And now Satan is going to raise him up to a whole new level of debauchery. He is going to use the Antichrist to deceive the world like never before and to blaspheme against God in a manner that hasn't been seen since the temple originally was built. It is an incredibly chaotic and horrific period of time in history. And as the Antichrist comes to the the surface, here in chapter 13, we will begin to discover his character by the manner in which John describes them here in 13, verse 1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, 
with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like the lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. And one of his heads was seemed to have been mortally wounded, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole world marveled as they followed the beast, and they worshipped the dragon, for he had given authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opens its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming His name and His dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And the authority was given over to every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwelt on the earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written in the foundation, from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captive he goes. Captivity he goes, excuse me. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is the call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. The Antichrist throughout the Bible has been called a variety of different names. Beginning in the book of Daniel, he is known as the Little Horn the king of fierce consonants, the prince that shall come, the willful king. John called him in John 5.43, the one who comes in his own name. And Paul called him the son of perdition, the man of sin, the lawless one. And this evening we discover him here. As John continues to describe him for us, he uses a term that is very distinctive of his character indeed, and that is the word beast. The Antichrist can't even be considered human, but a wild animal in nature. In fact, later on, he's called it rather than he. There's no humanity in him whatsoever. And as we continue from the description that John is giving us, As again, I remind you that John is seeing a vision and now he is recording that vision for us as he is exiled on the island of Patmos. He then sees this beast rising out of the sea. Commentators uh, differ on the opinion of what the sea represents symbolically. Some believe that it represents Gentile nations. Others see more Jewish overtones to it, where it is speaking of the sea itself. Jewish people in their folklore had a great reverence and fear of the sea itself. They felt that's where evil was lurking and awaiting them. Let me give you an example from the Gospels. When the disciples were crossing over the Sea of Galilee and the storm arose and they saw one walking on the water, what did they first call him? A ghost, exactly. That was a a symptom of their apprehension concerning the sea. So the, the place where evil dwells, 
possibly the Gentile nations, which again, Jewish people thought were very corrupt in nature. Out of this, the beast rises. He is then described having ten horns, seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on his heads. Now again, this would be very difficult to interpret unless we had some kind of key to interpret it by, and we do. To understand the book of Revelation, we must understand the symbology and the imagery that we find in the book of Daniel. Daniel is the key to the book of Revelation. And again, in this key, we discover that the ten horns represent ten kings, along with their diadems. A horn always represented one who is in authority, but with the accompaniment of the diadems, we discover that they are kings themselves. They are in authority as kings. Throughout the book of Daniel, Daniel clearly teaches that at the last days, there would be a confederacy of ten nations that would rise to world prominence. And out of those ten nations, a little horn would be uh, discovered, and that little horn would be the emergence of the Antichrist. It is these ten nations that the Antichrist is going to lead through this last three and a half year period of time. Those ten nations are built upon the seven heads, which Revelation chapter 17 shows us is seven mountains or seven kings. The seven mountains refer to none other than Rome itself. Again, that would be consistent with the book of Daniel. Because Daniel said that these last ten nations, described as toes in chapter uh, 2 of Daniel, and they're described as uh, ten horns in Daniel chapter 7, would be part of the old Roman Empire. But encased in all of these last ten nations, we also have a heritage not only that of Rome, represented in the seven heads, but also as he goes on to describe here in verse 2. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like that of a bear's, and its mouth was like that of a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. Again, we would be lost if it wasn't for the book of Daniel. In chapter 7, Daniel had a vision that was absolutely parallel to this one, where we discover that these three animals represented three empires leading to the Roman Empire, leading to the final empire. The first was rooted in Greece, the second the Medes and the Persians, and the third was the Babylonians. Here, John puts them in reverse order because John is looking from the future backwards. So what we are seeing here is that the Antichrist is going to rise to world power through a revised one-world empire. That's what we have here. That is rooted in the empires of the past from the Babylonians to the Medes and the Persians to the Greeks to the Romans And in Daniel chapter 7, you will discover, if you read it for yourself, that the fourth beast was the beast that is described here for us in chapter 13 of the book of Revelation. So as the Antichrist comes to power through this confederacy of nations, we find that it is Satan at this point who gives him his power. 
And in verse 3, something striking happens. One of his heads seems to have been mortally wounded, but its mortal wound was healed. And as a result, the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? One of the aspects of Satan that we must be aware of is that Satan is not a creator like God. Do we realize that? Satan is not a creator. He is a counterfeiter. He takes the truth and distorts it and creates falsehood. Undoubtedly, what we find happening here is that Satan is getting the world's attention by something that has already occurred. It appears, and most scholars look to this, as that the beast himself will be mortally wounded. The world will think that the Antichrist has been killed, some type of assassination attempt upon his life, and then all of a sudden he is healed and will rise to great power. Many have speculated, wouldn't it be interesting if this happened within a three-day period of time, that the Antichrist would be killed appear to be dead, and then rise again. In in fact, in chapter 11, we just discovered that with the two witnesses, hadn't we? Up till a period of time, they were allowed to proclaim uh, the warning to the people about the coming judgment, and then God released His hands, They they were martyred, and then they laid in the streets, their bodies laid in the streets, until God all of a sudden rose them up from the dead. Now the Antichrist will appear to do that which has already been done before, but forgotten in the annals of history and may be distorted by the delusion that God allows the people of the earth, according to Thessalonians, to be put under. They now see this one who appears to have resurrected after maybe three days, and the world is in awe of him. Some believe that this is what Zechariah is speaking of when it comes to the woeful shepherd in Zechariah 11, chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 11, verse 15 through 17. I'll read it for you. And the Lord said to me, take once more the equipment of the foolish shepherd, for behold, I am raising up in the land a shepherd who does not care for those being destroyed, or seek the young, or heal the maimed, or nourish the healthy, but devours the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hooves. And then he pronounces a warning that comes in the preface of a woe. Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May a sword strike him his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered and his right eye utterly blinded. Some people believe that that is speaking of the Antichrist himself, which is very possible and most likely. But notice that the beast gives the Antichrist, I'm sorry, the devil gives the Antichrist his power. The world marvels. He is healed. And in verse 4, they worship the dragon. The Antichrist is pointing people to the dragon who is satan himself at this point for he had given his authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast saying who is like the beast and who can fight against 
it. Sound familiar? Well, it should. For the psalmist wrote in Psalm 113, 5 through 6, Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and on the earth? The word anti doesn't only mean opposite of, but in place of. The Antichrist's rise to power is that his desire is to be in place of the true Christ. It is his goal and objective to deceive the world into believing that he himself is the actual Messiah. Not Christ, but he himself. And notice the reaction of the world giving the same accolades onto the Antichrist that they should have been giving onto God himself. And yet it is completely and utterly misplaced. And in verse 5 we discover, And the beast was given a mouth uttering blasphemy and haughty words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. What was he allowed to do? Exercise authority. He was allowed to do it. This is a portion of what God is deeming for the world. 42 months in the 360-day calendar would equal three and a half years. Again, John describing in verse 6 as, It opened its mouth and uttered blasphemies against God, blaspheming His name and His dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And the authority was given over it over every tribe and people, language and nation. And all who dwelled on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundations of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. For 42 months. He blasphemes against God. Insulting Him criticizing him, demeaning him through his words. James tells us that the tongue is energized by hell's fire, isn't it? We can only imagine what the Antichrist is leveling against God at this moment in waves and waves of blasphemy against him. Daniel spoke of this. In Daniel 36, 1136, Daniel states, and the king shall do as he wills. He exalts himself and magnifies himself above every god. And he shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the, his indignation is accomplished. For what is decreed shall be done. Daniel 7 goes on at that point to even use the word saints. He makes war on the saints. And on the earth, and victory over them has been given, and the world will worship him. In the days that this was written, this was very familiar to those who would read such words. The Caesars of Rome required that their uh, citizens worship them as a deity. And all of them had different accounts and stories that would indicate to the populace that they would or should be considered deities. Coins were made with their image on it to show that they were in charge of the world. Some miraculous story was often fabricated to allow the Caesar to walk in that era of of, uh, deification. 
So those reading at the time, as one wrote, certainly in John's day, this was meaningful. For every Roman citizen had to acknowledge that Caesar is Lord. Likewise, in every age of the church, true believers have to take their stand for Christ, come what may. Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians 2, 7-12, through I'll read it for you. For the mystery of the lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and all and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sent them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. God is in control. John sees here that a moment of encouragement is necessary for those going through that period of time to know that their endurance will play out. We can only imagine what this period of time would be like. I think we've all seen apocalyptic dramas of one sort or another. Or maybe you're a fan of World War II movies and the way that cities in Europe were depicted after just a devastating blitzkrieg of military activity. Cities lie in ruins. Food is very scarce. Sickness and disease is is everywhere and is prevalent. No, there is no clean running water. It is a very difficult and horrible time. Everything up until this point, we have seen the world be devastated agriculturally. There's not much left. And now it gets even worse. And so John wants those during that time to stand strong. Those who are there. That this is the way God would fulfill these things. And those who are not written in the book in life from the foundation of the world, whom the Lamb has been slain for, they will be deceived by these actions. And then he goes on to say, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Paul said something similar to this when he wrote in Romans chapter 8, when he talked about our victory in Jesus Christ and that we are more than conquerors. He also stated something very interesting that is often, I think, overlooked in the, in the teaching of that particular passage. And I'd like to bring it to your attention because I think it's important for us today. In verse 36 of chapter 8, he writes, And it is written, For your sake we are all being killed all day long, and we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. The Christian has always occupied the position of the persecuted. In other countries around the world, that is a reality. Here in the United States of America, we have experienced great grace to carry the favor that we have had and enjoyed for so long. But that is rapidly changing. 
The United States of America is starting to look like every other nation around the world, where once again the Christian will hold that position of persecuted. And we see that happening and translating already. But allowing one to be persecuted can be just as much of God's will as allowing one to be spared from persecution. And in Paul's writing, encouraging individuals to let them know that nothing shall ever separate them from the love of Jesus Christ took that persecution into account. There are men, women, and children today who are dying simply because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And this time will be like no other and to even a greater degree. In the New Testament, we find epistle after epistle after epistle written and seasoned with verses that would encourage the persecuted Christian. At the time, for example, that First and Second Peter were written, as he's writing to those who are spread abroad the known world, as Jews have now fled Israel, they are now into Gentile regions, and they had literally nothing. They were thrown out. They were pushed out of their own homeland. They were pushed out of their own homes. They had lost their material possessions and wealth. They had nothing, and yet God said, be encouraged. I believe that as persecution increases in many different forms here in the United States of America, Christianity of many will be tested. It's easy to be a Christian when everything is going well, isn't it? I enjoy my devotion sitting on my couch with a cup of coffee just like everybody else does. But I'm often reminded that there are others who are hiding, hoping that no one finds them with that one page of the Bible that they keep so precious to them. They've read so many times that they could recite it uh, by heart, but yet they read it again in hopes that God would show them something more from the one page that they had. I don't make that story up. That story I just recently read of a, a, a Chinese Christian who was hiding for his life and had one page of the Bible. We need to keep things in perspective as believers here in the United States of America. We need to be challenged with the reality that the Word of God depicts for us when it comes to our Christian faith. And if God has given us such great grace and freedom that He has given us today, why are we spending it on our carnality? Why are we laying, in, laying within it in apathy and carnality and complacency? Why aren't we out there getting the gospel to every person that could possibly hear it? I think we're going to be held accountable for the great grace and privilege that God has allowed us to experience. As one wrote, he says, Charles Swindoll, from his commentary on Revelation, He says, pause for a moment. Try hard to imagine yourself as one of those faithful saints enduring those fateful fateful days. They will sometimes huddle together for mutual defense and sometimes stand alone before their persecutors. Think about that. Enter into their existence and as you allow your imagination to run free, How might they feel during this time of trial? How may they endure that time of difficulty? The Antichrist coming to power, reigning over the world. God allowing the devil to unleash his wrath upon those on the world who are his. 
and the difficulties that arise from it, John writes here, here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. The first beast is preceded then by the second, verse 11. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. Now it had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs even to make fire come down from heaven to the earth in front of people. And by the signs that it allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword. Interesting. And yet lived in comparison to Zechariah 11. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also it caused all both great, small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave to be marked on the right hand and on the forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or whose number is its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for it is the number of a man. And his number is 666. The false prophet. Again, if Satan's endeavor is to mimic the coming of Jesus Christ, any great and significant individual needed a herald to precede him. One that would go before him into any region or any land or any city and herald to the authorities of those cities, a great individual is following me. He is coming. Prepare for his coming. For Jesus Christ, it was a very unique individual. He lived out in the desert. He lived on uh, honey and wild locusts. He just uh, was a very interesting character. He spoke his mind, rebuked King Herod for marrying his brother's wife and died as a result of it but he made straight the path calling the people of Israel to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand and then that day when he was baptizing he saw come over the horizon one who he called the Lamb of God told his disciples to go and follow him because as John stated I'm speaking of John the Baptist stated For I must decrease and he must increase. John the Baptist, the one who leapt in the womb womb of Elizabeth prior to his birth when Mary came in their presence as she was carrying Jesus himself. So again, as Satan is not a creator but a counterfeiter, the Antichrist himself needs one to be a herald before him. Someone who is also in authority someone that would go before him and make his way straight. That is the false prophet that we find here, the third of our terrible trio. And as this individual comes forth, we read and discover about him, this one rises out of the earth. 
Some believe that this individual is Jewish. I don't think we have enough evidence to state that, but let me tell you why they believe it. If the sea in Revelation 13.1 represents Gentile nation, some believe that the earth in Revelation 11, 11 equals, I'm sorry, 13.11 equals Israel. But I don't believe that's what he is saying here. We don't have enough evidence for that to be certain. He has two horns, so he has authority, but there is no diadem spoken about here. He's not one who is reigning politically. Most believe that he will be a religious leader that will precede the Antichrist. He is given and he spoke in the same power of the dragon and exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence, meaning that the first beast uh, allows him to speak on his behalf and so forth. And as you notice, as he makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, we start to see an interesting parallel occur. That parallel is a creation of an unholy trinity. We as Christians hold dear to the doctrine of the trinity, that God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all three are one. They're all one in essence, but they play different functions, don't they? The Holy Spirit points to who, according to John? Jesus. Jesus points to who? The Father. Do you notice the same parallel here? For the false prophet points to the Antichrist. And the Antichrist points to Satan. We see the same parallel here. Satan is not original, okay? He just takes what has already been created and distorts it. And that's what we see playing out here in that same authoritative fashion. Satan is in control. His individual, the Antichrist, is the one that he has uh, given the power to deceive the world as he may. And that is followed by the false prophet who is pointing the world to the Antichrist. But notice how he deceives the world with signs, great signs, and even making uh, great signs and wonders, even making fire come down from heaven, just as the prophets did in chapter 11 in front of the people. And the signs that it was allowed to work in the presence of the beast that deceived those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. There's always been a fascination with signs and wonders, but the Bible makes it clear that you can have true signs and wonders that point to God, the gospel, Jesus Christ, and for his glory, but you can also have false signs and wonders. We've all seen the TV evangelists. We've all seen the so-called healing ministries that point glory to everybody except God. I always get very nervous when someone invites me to something that says, come see so-and-so's ministry. The reason I get concerned about that is because already the emphasis is wrong. It's not on God, it's on that person's ministry and that person. That person is just an instrument. Nowhere do I ever find Paul the Apostle writing saying, tonight, one night only, Paul the Apostle and his ministry with special guests opening up Timothy and Titus. You know, it never happened. Peter never introduced himself this way. 
They always pointed back to God, always pointed back to Jesus Christ, always gave glory to the work of the Holy Spirit. Even the angels who had not fallen, when John falls before them in worship, and I got to be honest with you, if I were to see an angel, I think that's where I'd go first, right? Just to be sure. And if they say, no, no, I'm a fellow servant like you, I'd be like, thank goodness, and get up. They wouldn't even take glory from God. Then why should anyone else? But do you notice that's exactly what's happening here? The signs and wonders are not here to glorify God. They're here to glorify the Antichrist. Signs and wonders can be absolutely deceiving. And they must be tested by the word of God to see if they are truly of God or not. Let me read this to you from Dr. John Wolverd. False religious systems which support in this way imitate the divine trinity. Satan seeks to take the place of God the Father. The first beast assumes the place of Jesus Christ the Son, the King of Kings. And the second beast, the false prophet, has the role similar to that of the Holy Spirit who causes Christians to worship God. This is Satan's final attempt to substitute a false religion for true faith in Jesus Christ. Today, as we see more signs and wonders being created by these false ministries, we can see that it's only preparatory for the last great signs and wonders to be exercised. I'm all for miracles. I believe God can do a miracle anytime He wishes. God can intervene and into a person's life, into a scenario and do something miraculous. And if it is truly of God, the glory will go to God. In the Bible, when miracles were done, it was always to point people to the the gospel of Jesus Christ. It wasn't about the person performing the miracle. It was the individual performing the miracle through that person that was always the one taken into consideration. I encourage you that as you read through the Word of God that you would be attentive to how many times we are warned about lying signs and wonders. And any time something is rendered that we would test it against the authority of the Word of God. Again, look with me in verse 13. And it performed great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of the people. And by the signs that it, it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those. And that's the ultimate deception. They think it is one thing they are fully convinced and in actuality is completely false. Those who dwell on the earth telling them to make an image for the beast that is, that is wounded by the sword yet lives. And it was allowed to give breath to that image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who, not, who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. An event that Daniel had predicted that Jesus had forecasted now unfolds before us. It is called the abomination of desolation. It is an event that we are told throughout Scripture will occur in the last days. Daniel spoke of this event when he wrote in Daniel 9.27, And he shall make a strong covenant, that is the Antichrist, with many for one week. And for half of those weeks he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wings of abomination shall come one who makes desolate, 
until the decree end is poured out on the desolator. Or in Daniel 11.31, forces him he shall appear and beframe the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. And in Daniel 12.11, Daniel went on to say, And from that time the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up. There shall be 1,290 days. Biblical prophecy can often have a short-term fulfillment and a long-term fulfillment. A short-term fulfillment usually happens within a specified period of time. And that had occurred here in 167 BC. A man named Antiochus Epiphanes went in Jerusalem, conquered Jerusalem on behalf of the Romans, and he went in and desecrated the temple. And he did so in three ways. Number one, he killed the high priest. Number two, he resurrected an image of himself within the temple. And number three, he slaughtered a pig on the altar of the temple and desecrated it. This then spurred on the Maccabean revolt and so forth. That was the short-term fulfillment of this. And we would settle it as being the ultimate fulfillment if it wasn't for Jesus Christ himself, who told his disciples there uh, on the, the um, Olivet Discourse, he gave them this warning in Matthew 24, verses 15 through 16. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Mark reiterates this, or I should say Mark preceded this, by writing in Mark thirteen fourteen. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand that those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And still further in mind... This is interesting. Still further in mind, Paul even capitalizes on this. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3-4. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God, an object, object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, depending on the writing of Second Thessalonians, which was probably um, probably fifty something, sixty something, the temple in Jerusalem still stood. That was destroyed in seventy A.D. Now, many think that the abomination of desolation took place at the destruction of the temple there in 70 AD, though historians do not comment on that fact. We don't have an occurrence of that happening. We have it dismantled brick by brick as the Romans were pulling the gold out from it, just as Jesus stated that this building will be taken down brick by brick, not one brick shall stand upon another. That was actually predicting the destruction of the temple there in 70 AD, but there hadn't been another abomination of desolation. In fact, in 270 AD, one of the oldest commentators on the book of Revelation still waited for the abomination of desolation to take place. Now this is 200 years after the destruction of the uh, temple. I read this as it is quoted. 
He says this is not, the commentator is saying, this is not a recent understanding of this passage, that there is still yet a further future abomination of desolation. The first commentary that we have on the book of Revelation, written about 270 A.D., written by Victorianus in the early church, says this of Revelation 13.5, He that is the Antichrist shall cause also that a golden image of the Antichrist shall be placed in the temple at Jerusalem and that the apostate angels should enter and their utter voices and oracles. So at 270 AD, there was already this anticipation that this event was going to occur. And I believe that's what you have here in Revelation 13 with the image of the beast being resurrected in this temple that is created at this time that we saw in Revelation 11 so forth. And it is this idol that is given some ability to make the proclamation that all who do not worship, this is based on syntactical evidence of the Greek, that all who do not worship the image of the beast or the beast himself shall be killed. This is it. Revelation 13 is the fulfillment of what Jesus said there in Matthew 24 that Daniel predicted back in the book of Daniel that the abomination of desolation, the Antichrist's ultimate act of rebellion was going to be resurrecting this idol that was going to be given the ability to speak and as it gives the ability to speak it then summons people to worship or to die before it. Verse 15. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also it caused all, both great, small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or on the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This is calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of man. His number is 666. The final act of the false prophet will be that to demand the world to show and to outwardly display their loyalty and allegiance to the Antichrist by accepting and receiving some type of mark. This wasn't a, a new occurrence. We have indications in history of slaves who had tried to escape. They were marked. We have individuals who place themselves in servitude of others uh, willfully. They are marked to show that they are now willfully subjected to that owner, to that individual. We have that throughout the history of this period of time. We have soldiers who were conquered by a conquering army who would surrender and then that conquering army would have them surrender and then mark them with the conquering army's image. So we have precedence for such an event. But notice the totality of this event. And that totality is discovered 
in the terms that are contrast to one another, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or on the forehead. Some mark will be given. And unless they have this mark, they will not be able to buy or sell unless this mark is prevalent upon them. The ultimate act of allegiance. We call it the mark of the beast. And ever since the conception of computers, the barcoding scanning, uh, we have been terrified that somehow, someway, we're going to inadvertently take the mark of the beast. That's not the occurrence. Do we have an infrastructure of technology that would allow individuals to buy and to sell in a cashless society? Of course we do. Banks are moving to get rid of cash faster than you can possibly think and have it all computerized. Today, banks want to get rid of written checks because they take so much to process and they are so costly to process. They would love for you to be able just to swipe something across a reader and just be debited accordingly. In fact, it happens today. You can go to your local grocery store. You can go to your local food market, etc. But in the last days, the Antichrist will control all commerce, economic commerce, and individuals will be excluded if they are not able to buy and sell. That's really what's happening here. Those who are Christians will not be able to allow themselves to take this mark of allegiance. They will be further ostracized. They will be isolated. If things were difficult before, they're going to be even more difficult now because at the moment that they refuse, there will be a consequence to pay. As we will discover later, they will be beheaded for their refusal to take this mark. So understand the consequences of the mark. Understand that if it is a point of technology or um, a use of technology, that infrastructure is in place. But don't get so fixated on just it being some implanted chip that we lose the overall understanding of what is going to happen here. People are going to lose their lives in the wake of this. They are going to be called upon to make a decision. Stand up for Christ or deny Christ. Now that might be easy for you as an individual. And maybe you're thinking, yes, if I was confronted with that at that moment, I would stand victorious for the person of Jesus Christ. But think now if you have a family and your children or your wife and how much more difficult that becomes when you learn that you can have them spared if you only receive the mark. That's what we're trying to depict here. The segregation that's going to take place as this mark is being distributed and it's being implemented by the Antichrist. And we could see something like that happening overnight if, if need be today. But don't miss what is happening here. People will be pushed to a decision. They'll have to make a choice. But in so doing, they are claiming their allegiance because they are taking that which is of Him and they are subjecting, subjugating themselves to the Antichrist himself. Surely those who read this at that time would know and remember Caesar and the worship of the Roman Empire. But the same policies have been used by political leaders throughout history. Ultimate allegiance must be formulated through ultimate tyranny and dictatorship. It's the only way. And that's what will happen here. Which leads us now to this number. 
The number is 666. I think most people were introduced to this number by a a very, very bad movie that was released in the 70s called The Omen. Good. Don't go out and see it, please. I am not prescribing that to anyone. But it was a movie where a child was born who was the Antichrist, and it had a three sixes on the top of his head. There were actually people in the 70s who would look on their children's skull for that number. Wow. But what does this number mean? It's the number of man, it says here. It's the number of his name. And there has been so much conjecture and speculation concerning what this number actually means that we are no closer to its true understanding today than we were 2,000 years removed. But this number is equal to the beast himself. Many have tried to calculate this number. Again, that's what it's inquiring us to do, instructing us to do. Looking at it from a grammatica type of way, something the Jewish people were into very much, that each letter of an alphabet had a numerical equivalent and so forth, coming up with different uh, understandings and different names that it could spell out. The only trouble is that the people found that any name could be manipulated in any way to formulate 666. And over the course of the years, there have been many, many names that have been formulated and also recorded to add up to 666. This is why I do not suggest us pursuing this type of approach. Listen to what one wrote here. Does this number actually tell us who the beast is by figuring out the numerical value of a name and seeing if it adds up to 666? Using this method, many uh, candidates for Antichrist have been suggested, such as the Pope or the papacy, John Knox himself, even Martin Luther, Napoleon, Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin, and so forth. And I can remember books of Gorbachev being written because he had this particular um, birthmark on his head, and that was the 666. And those books are all in clearance now, and you can find them at the you know, thrift stores, and, and I think people are using them to hold up their tables and so forth. You know, they're ridiculous. We don't know what this means. I like what Chuck Swindoll wrote. The commence of the tribulation will resolve around that identifying mark mysteriously calculated as 666 the name of the beast, or the number of his name. John informs us that this number is that of man, somehow related to the Antichrist's name. Of course, this kind of thing has been drawn, has drawn attention of countless calculations throughout history, as the Bible believers have tried to identify the man behind the mark. One commentator aptly notes, the number of the beast down through the centuries has been linked with literally hundreds of different possibilities. In Latin, Greek, and Hebrew letters uh, stand for numbers so that anyone with a calculator and a good dose of creativity can slap 666 label on any number of prominent personalities. Even Irenaeus, I found this quote from 180 A.D., After discussing the various false identifications of the Antichrist prevalent even in his own day, Irenaeus of Lyons wrote, It is therefore much more certain and less hazardous to await the fulfillment of the prophecy than to be making summaries and casting about for any name that may present themselves. 
meaning we don't know exactly what it means. But being the number of man, man created on the sixth day, and in the light of everything that we've read up until this point, we do see that it could mimic and mock the Trinity itself. The number of completion is seven. The number of new beginnings is eight. And so the man, a man numbered at six is a man of imperfection. And it is imperfect in every manner of stratagem that the Antichrist is going to level against the world. That's interesting in and of itself. But I don't want any of you going home tonight with a calculator and the internet and trying to come up with candidates for the Antichrist by this Sunday. We don't know how it is going to play out. But this we do know. It will play out. This will occur. This will happen in the days that are still yet ahead. As we conclude, I read this to you. This unholy trinity distortion represents Satan's final attempt at blaspheming God and deceiving the world by twisting the truth into a grotesque caricature of the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Today, Satan seeks the same goal of deception. He disguises himself as an angel of light to disarm the unexpecting and then trick those people into worshiping and following him. During the coming tribulation, however, the potential for spiritual deception will be far greater. In the midst of the worldwide chaos caused by natural disasters, political upheavals, and widespread death, the false prophet will present a compelling creed. His false religion will offer false hope to to a starving world. That's the reality behind chapter 13. Again, in chapters 12 and 13, the terrible trio have been revealed. Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, leading to the ultimate blasphemy, the abomination of desolations where the image of the Antichrist is, I believe, placed there in the temple for the world to worship him. And things are now in place for the great and final tribulation period. And as we move into chapters 14, 15, and 16, and we lead to the bold judgments being poured upon the earth, these are going to be the darkest days in the existence of human history. And yet, at the end of that darkness, there's going to be a beacon of light like never before. As we come to Revelation 19, and Jesus Christ returns. That's what we're working our way up to that glorious truth, our blessed hope, the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.